Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. My first recollections of John Kerry were as a young Navy veteran and Vietnam War hero who had become one of the most powerful critics uh, of that war in the early 70s. He, he, of course, went on to become a senator, a secretary of state, and very nearly president of the United States. I sat down with Secretary Kerry for my CNN TV show tonight. It was a really full and interesting conversation, all of which you can hear here. Secretary Kerry, great to be with you here in your old and new haunt, uh, Yale University, a seminal place in your, in your life. We'll yeah. talk about that, but uh, it is a life that's been dedicated to the uh, proposition that uh, these democratic institutions, that global institutions, diplomacy were important pillars uh, for our country. What, what's the state of American foreign policy now? Deeply challenged. Deeply challenged to the point of being dangerous for our country and contrary to the goals of foreign policy, which is supposed to advocate your interests and your values simultaneously. And uh, we're not doing that. President Trump has isolated America uh, and taken us backwards in terms of institutions that were structured ever since World War II to bring the world together. He, he, he has really uh, isolated us and taken us backwards in a way when we ought to be uniting the world and, and coming together. You know, he would say that these institutions and these alliances have taken advantage uh, of America and that uh, he wants to advance American interests uh, and that is best done by withdrawing from some of, some of these entanglements. Well, he actually says, uh, so I think, something a little different from that, David. Yes, he argues that, 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 for instance, NATO is not paying its fair share. President Obama raised that issue powerfully. And I remember at the Wales G20, uh, we... Uh, the president, President Obama, succeeded in getting these countries to all agree to increase their amounts. So that's not a new argument. President Trump pretends it is. Uh, he also it, intimates that, that this money is going into a pot. This is yeah. money that these countries contribute Spend to their themselves own to their own yeah. defense. Uh, so no surprise, a man who has, in the course of his presidency, presented the world more than 7,300 lies accounted for by major media outlets, has lied about that, as he has about the reason for withdrawing from Iran, the reason for withdrawing from Paris, the reason for withdrawing... Well, so let's talk about those, because you were, you were deeply, deeply involved in all of those things. But may I say one thing quickly, David, about the, the, why these institutions are important. After World War II, we spent 
huge creative energy from people like Dean Acheson and George Marshall and others to restructure the world, really. And the Bretton Woods Agreement, the, the UN, all of these things were created to prevent people from killing each other as rapidly as they had been up until then with World War I and then World mm -hmm. War II. The audacity of what uh, George Marshall and Harry Truman did is stunning. They said, we're going to turn around and invest money in rebuilding the countries that attacked us. They rebuilt Germany, rewrote a constitution, rebuilt Japan, rewrote a constitution. And today, two of our strongest allies in the world that are democracies are Japan and Germany. It was an investment that the American people were, didn't support it fundamentally. But that was leadership. Today, without any demonstration of how it will make America safer, why we need to do this, this false presumption that, quote, America first, every president puts America first, but they don't do it in the same way that Donald Trump has, where he's breaking things apart without any alternative that makes us safer. So, um, in, in fact, the values that are contained within the United Nations and the Security Council and the efforts we've made are the values that have helped us to, to create a world in which far less violence is taking place today between nation states than at any time in human history. Fewer people are dying than at any time in human history. So why would you turn away from that, which is what the president is doing? And, and he has because encouraged Because I think he thinks Brexit. he's got an appealing uh, political argument. Yeah, but it's a cheap argument, and cheap arguments by people who are in the highest positions of leadership are the last thing the world needs right now. We need to be addressing climate change. We need to be addressing cyber. We need to be addressing vast populations of young people who don't have a future in the world, and that's dangerous to us. Let, let, me, uh, let me ask you about you, your, your personal feelings about this, because you, you travel, I think, 1.3 billion miles, million miles, yeah. billion Felt like a billion miles. <laughs> you, you'd have to be on one of those uh, space yeah. shuttles. Uh, to do As that it thing. is, we spent six months in the air traveling. And uh, a lot of it in service of those very agreements that the yeah. president has now uh, withdrawn from. Do you feel like you, the, 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 the houses that you built have been mowed over? No. I mean, do you feel like I really the accomplishments don't. have been on the contrary. undone? No, on the contrary, David. Uh, here's what I feel. Uh, I am, I'm encouraged that in the face of an onslaught from a president who has zero you know, depth in foreign policy, who does not have any uh, intellectual curiosity or any capacity to really articulate a genuine foreign policy structure except tear it apart. In the face of that, the Iran nuclear agreement is holding together. People are trying to keep it together. China, Russia, France, Germany, Britain are all persevering to keep that agreement together, including Iran. You went around to some of the allies as a private citizen and urged them to stay well, no, what I, what I urged them to do at the time, American policy, was still to be in the agreement. And at that point in time, um, uh, I suggested to them that I thought it was important for this agreement and for the world not to move backwards with respect to a country pursuing a nuclear weapon. President Obama succeeded in eliminating a nuclear weapon from the immediate challenge of our foreign policy. And his intention and desire was then to move on to 
the issues of the missiles, of Yemen, of Iraq, of Because that's Israel. the argument that, 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 they're, they're, that Iran is as much a malign influence in the region as ever, perhaps no. more so. So the, the, the agreement did not curb that behavior. Actually, it affected that behavior, and Iran uh, helped us to achieve a number of ceasefires in Yemen. Iran indicated a willingness to sit down and negotiate in any number of circumstances, but we uh, had difficulty bringing other partners, allies of ours, to, to, to the table to do that. Um, what, what President Trump has done is adopt a policy of just confrontation. Uh, and in doing so, he has made it extremely difficult, in fact, for a leader of Iran to come to the table because the politics of Iran are as complicated as anybody's politics. So the hardliners in Iran are saying to the supreme leader, look, we told you so. You can't trust the United States. And what President Trump has done is reinforce that notion. And the hardliners in Iran, it should be pointed out, opposed, opposed the deal. The deal. Opposed the deal. You so know, they're getting President Trump to help them undo it, just as President Putin is getting President Trump to... Can you imagine President Trump adopted the, the Soviet Union's point of view about why they invaded Afghanistan, which everybody knows to be a lie. President Trump stood beside uh, President Putin in Helsinki, feet away from him, like we are, and literally uh, renounced the, the, the consensus opinion of the entire security intelligence community of the United States and of other countries, and took Putin's side on the subject of involvement. And why do you think that is? I think it's because the, the Russians clearly, he has some special relationship with them and is not made public. And uh, I think he's fearful that President Putin probably has information on him. Now look, I know from our trips to Russia, everything you do and say is being listened to and is being followed. While, while, while Donald Trump was pursuing the Miss Universe contest and, and Trump Towers in Moscow and visiting, I have no doubt that whatever activities he was engaged in, I don't know what they all were, uh, but I do know from intelligence community personnel that I've talked to that there is huge credibility within the intel community to the so-called Steele dossier and to many of that. Now, I, you Did know, you see any of that in the intel when you were, you were there during the 2016 campaign? In your very good book, your memoir uh, here, you didn't really cover the 2016 uh, campaign, but you must have been privy to the intel during that period. Well, I was privy to intel, which made it very clear to me and to others in the administration what the Russians were doing and how they operate. And anybody who knows how Russia operates uh, has to understand, and the cautions that we are given when you go into a hotel, you know, how you behave, what you talk about, where you talk about it, those cautions uh, ring very true here. But, but in terms of their intrusion in our election, um, do you think that we, we didn't know everything they were doing at that point in time? Did maybe. you do as much as you could in terms of alerting, uh, alerting the country? I know the president was concerned about about not looking like he was trying to put his finger. on Well, the I, I guarantee you, from having run a presidential race, that if the president had gone out with Trump already in the process of laying the groundwork for potentially not accepting the results of the election. Trump already arguing the election was rigged. Trump already, uh, you know, creating this framework, which many people talked about, about creating a new media network and thinking he was going to lose. Uh, I believe that uh, if the president had gone out then personally 
and said to America, this is what is going to happen, um, there would have been enormous backlash, and I can hear what it would have been. And President Obama, in an effort to avoid that, went to Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, and asked him to join in what they all knew was the intelligence, and Mitch McConnell refused. So the president did the next best thing, which was have the director of the CIA and have right. the uh, national intelligence director go out and make what was a very carefully drafted and thorough warning to America that this was happening, but doing it in a way that it wouldn't be politicized. And then immediately after the election was over, the president uh, took measures that he thought uh, were appropriate to punishing Russia for that. Let me ask you uh, something more on this Russia issue. Uh, there was a kind of startling piece in the Washington Post uh, recently uh, about the fact that the President of the United States uh, met privately with uh, Vladimir Putin and there is no record of it and, he is, and his senior aides were not apparently briefed yeah. on what happened in there. those meetings. The only two people who know what happened in those conversations are Putin and Trump. Was well, there the anything, have you, has the there ever, yeah. in your experience, how unusual is that? Well, it's unusual to have a two-hour meeting in that context. I mean, I, I think I had a four- to five-hour meeting with President Putin, but I had my, uh, you know, Undersecretary of State there, the ambassador right, sure. there. We had but a, alone. A of people. I spent about five minutes with him alone yeah. and related what the conversation was. But I think... I think you, the, you came back and told your aides what happened in, and the yes. national security folks what happened in these conversations. Absolutely. He asked, he actually asked apparently for the uh, interpreters' notes to be uh, with, uh, with, withheld from them. That's what I understand. So what, is, what are the implications of that? I think that the fact that the FBI has announced, or that people have learned, maybe a better way to phrase it, and there have been public stories about the FBI initiating an investigation as to whether or not the President of the United States was working in concert with or on behalf wittingly of... Wittingly or unwittingly. Wittingly or unwittingly, uh, says it all. I think it's, it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary moment for our nation when that question is asked. And just look at what John McCain said when that event took place in Helsinki where they stood toe-to-toe -to -toe and the president capitulated overtly. Uh, John McCain said it, 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 it was a... Uh, uh, you know, abject uh, kind of moment of, of, of the president giving in to a, to a tyrant. Um, he he was well, do you very, believe very that harsh. he is a, do you believe that he is? I, I, David, I can't draw conclusions. What I, all I'm saying is that, that as many people have pointed out in recent days, it would have been malpractice and inappropriate for the FBI not to have some kind of inquiry based on the input that they were getting. From now, how many people, I mean, there must be 15 plus, I, I, I don't follow 14. It, exactly, 14 or 15 yes. who have pled guilty. Oh, actually, I them. thought you were talking about people that in, they, in contacts with the Russians. Well, they're 14 or 15 who had contacts with the Russians, but there are others yes, yes. who have now pled guilty. Uh, and I think, uh, speaking as a former prosecutor, yeah, I there are very you. powerful yeah. indications of, of prima facie uh, collusion in the sense that if you have an email coming, well, if you have an email coming from a 
from a Russian operative who's saying, we have dirt on Hillary Clinton. And you have another email coming back from the son of the candidate uh, saying, wow, we love that. We want to meet. Can't wait for the meeting. That's collusion. Just right there. That's a form of so, so let me ask you as a former prosecutor, but also as a former longtime member of the United States Senate who ran uh, some very sophisticated hearings and investigations, uh, what, what, is, what should the role of Congress be at this point? And we expect soon to see a report from, from Robert Mueller, the special counsel. You know, the word impeachment is floating in the air. You lived through one of them uh, when you yeah, were I think the it's Senate. a mistake to have the word impeachment floating through the air right now because it politicizes things. Uh, I, I think the evidence to, to me of, of high crimes uh, and misdemeanors is, is, uh, is an important standard. I did not believe we met that standard with respect to the impeachment of President Clinton. I think the Republicans paid a big price for that. And I think it would be a mistake for Democrats to sort of run headlong in without evidence. Let's see what Robert Mueller says. There is an important investigation taking place in the country. Uh, and, and I think uh, the American people need to digest whatever that is. And we need to listen to the American people. There needs to be a response uh, to America's response to whatever that report is. And people will know whether there's something there that rises to a very significant uh, question. You know, the biggest game in Washington is what does Mueller know and when are we going to know it? Uh, but you know him, which very few people do. He's not a guy who, who's made himself a public figure. He kind of shies away. And in this, appropriately, that has been the most sealed operation in Washington. But you, you've known him for most of your life. Well, I knew him uh, at high school, we, we spent a number of years together playing on the same teams. We played soccer and hockey and lacrosse together, uh, and we were classmates, and I admire him enormously. He has had an extraordinary professional career, served his country in Vietnam with distinction, um, and uh, has had a law enforcement record that's unparalleled. I mean, his tenure at FBI was unprecedented because people respected him, because he's a man who plays it straight, he calls it the way he sees it, and I have absolute confidence. I don't know anything about this, what he has. I haven't talked to him during the period of time he's been uh, here and uh, in this role. And, but I just know with total confidence he will live up to his oath and to his sense of patriotism. Interesting and was, right. You remember him as being quite quite conservative and very much from well, a Republican. He was, he, yeah, he was a Republican. He, he, not automatically a conservative, but he was a Republican. He, was, he worked with Governor Thornburg. He worked uh, in Washington professionally, appointed by Republican presidents to important roles in the Justice Department. And otherwise, and President Obama uh, relied on him and continued. So that's what we need right now. America needs individuals who can call it the way they see it and the way the facts dictate, not accusing everybody of fake news, not, not dividing America, not uh, tolerating white nationalist, white supremacist language and incidents like Charlottesville, like Steve King's recent comments. That's intolerable. That is, that is destructive to our democracy. And, and what, what bothers me so much right now, David, I think it should bother everybody in America, is the fact that We've lost the willingness that we saw in the course 
of the Watergate hearings, for instance, to let the chips fall where they may and, and to then respond appropriately. Right now, we have members of the Senate, certainly, who I know and like and respect or have respected through, through mutual service, who seem to be more interested in protecting party and protecting well, the, the, their the jobs? president and protecting their jobs than in protecting constitutional Well, let me ask you about one of them. Lindsey Graham was someone who you worked closely with. I remember you guys coming to the White House to talk about climate change sure. uh, back yeah. during the Obama administration before you left yeah. to become Secretary of State. He was always considered a bit of a maverick in the Senate and willingness to work both sides. He's become uh, the president, one of his most vociferous supporters, and the suspicion is he's running for re-election in South Carolina and he's looking over his right shoulder. Well, I'm not going to get into individual personalities and, and, and let, let me just say this. We've I mean, heard, say we've, it's emblematic we, of some, well, of, it is a larger yes, issue. Yes, it is. And I, I, I absolutely yeah. think we should get into the larger issue, which is we've heard people condemn a congresswoman because she used an expletive uh, at one moment. We've heard people jumping on some of the younger newly electeds uh, because of their outspokenness, et cetera. But just think about this. We, we, those same people express zero outrage when the president has an interview with Billy Bush on a bus and uses terminology and references uh, that are just extraordinary for president. There's no sense of impropriety and outrage about a president of the United States paying off a porn star. There's no outrage about the president of the United States defending uh, language of white nationalism, of white supremacy, uh, or instances of it. There is no outrage uh, when the president actually uses the Soviet Union's excuse for the invasion of Afghanistan. But isn't, but, but isn't it uh, no? Uh, but isn't it fear? Uh, fear? I mean, uh, look, David, my, maybe I'm being yeah. unfair to uh, to people in politics. I was in politics for a lot of my life, but it seems to me that politicians very close to their first concern is <coughs> staying in office. And I, I'm not saying they but don't want to do be. good That's things. That's the whole point. That's not the oath you take. When you walk down that corridor into the Senate and you raise your hand before everybody and the president, vice president of the United States swears you in, what do you say? You say, I swear I will uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And, and you know, that's the oath. Not I pledge to take care of myself to stay here for 30 years. And so what's happened is people have lost that sense of what's important to our country. Our democracy is threatened today. Our democracy is threatened. We are dysfunctional. I mean, let's be honest about it. We don't pass a budget. We look at the government. As you and I are talking, the government is still locked out. Hard-working people supposedly to provide services to our fellow citizens are not able to go to work or are going to work with no pay. But you know, you look at this the polling a, on that and, and, and there's strong now and stronger support growing support for the president's position among Republicans. Yes, and that is, that is exactly the way in which the country has been polarized by a president who signed off on an agreement, David, said to Mitch McConnell, bring it to the floor, I will sign it, and a couple of days That's later, to open because the government, that keep the government open, keep the government keep open, keep it the, moving, and we'll keep negotiating. And, and this president is not negotiating. He doesn't negotiate. 
This is a man who claims to be the world's greatest negotiator. What is he negotiating? He, he, he pulled out of TPP. Did he fix it? Did he do something for workers? Did he make it better? No, he just pulled out. Ceded power in Asia, which you know we worked extremely hard to build up that, that position. You, you can disagree with TPP. I'm not sitting here as the advocate saying, but if, you, if you're a great negotiator, present it to them with some changes, and I guarantee you he could have had a new agreement within months and said, look, I am the greatest negotiator. Pulls out of Paris. Gets absolutely nothing accord. on climate change accord. Gets absolutely nothing for pulling out of Paris. Pulls out of Iran. Doesn't get anything except now a greater polarization, a greater danger, the possibility of war, greater conflict, not empowering the Iranians to be able to come to the table. He pulls out of Afghanistan. He says, we're going to get out of Afghanistan. Pulls the rug out from under his own negotiator who was about to sit down and negotiate with the Taliban. That's the biggest card of all, whether you're going to pull out or not. Pulls out of Syria without leveraging out of the Syria uh, agreement, something for the Kurds, something with respect to Russia and Iran in order to have an agreement as to the future of Syria and Iraq and the region. None of these things take place. This is the, this is the pull out, walk away presidency. And it is not enhancing the interests of the United States of America. You, Secretary uh, Pompeo was, is, has just been in the Middle East. He made a speech in, in, in Cairo uh, in which he, it was, which was a repudiation of the Obama foreign policy. He did it from the very platform I was there in, uh, 10 years ago when President Obama made his outreach to the Muslim world and tried to isolate uh, extremism. And uh, he said, uh, the age of self-inflicted American shame is over. Uh, well, look at all the things I just said. Who's kidding who? Are you, are you kidding me? The age of shame is over? When a president of the United States capitulates to the president of Russia and adopts his point of view on Afghanistan, when he stands up and, and, and in a moment of ignominy just capitulates in front of the president on, on whether or not, says, I believe Putin, not my intelligence community with respect to what happened in America. That's a moment of shame. When the president of the United States uh, you know, pulls out of Syria and General Mattis resigns. Brett McGurk, who's done a masterful job of working uh, the counter-ISIS war and so forth, resigns. That is a moment of shame. So I, I just, uh, you know, we got to get our facts straight here. He was, uh, you know, when, when I was watching the Syria story unfold, I, I, I thought of you, and I thought when I see these guys traveling the Middle East trying to settle, and, and the world trying to settle allies down after the president did what he did and announced her spontaneously, uh, he was pulling out. And you had this uncomfortable situation in 2014 relative to the red line, Correct. the use of chemical weapons. You, yeah. you were a strong proponent, and you write about it in your book, that America should have gone forward and bombed. And you, you actually, uh, with uh, the White House's knowledge and agreement, gave a speech that laid the predicate for all of that. And then the president well, decided not The president not, makes not the president's the decider. And, and the president made You a, think it was a, a mistake, decision. though? I think that uh, uh, we needed to respond in a way very quickly and, and, and shortly thereafter before he started to maneuver and put civilians into buildings and did other things. Uh, it, it would didn't it, happen. Would Syria be, have been, would no, the outcome in Syria no, have been different? No, and that's very important. That's why I was able... Uh, look, the president never made a decision, David, 
not to bomb. The president, in response to what David Cameron did in Britain two days earlier, when he'd gone to parliament and lost, and, and, and based on the, the history of wars in which presidents undertake something and it goes wrong and you don't have Congress with you, the president made a decision that he thought Congress would respond. And by the way, Vice President Biden, myself, uh, believed that we would get congressional support very quickly. Only Susan Rice called that one correctly, by the way, and said, they're not going to do this. She's the national security advisor. She's the national security advisor. And, and so uh, we were wrong. Congress didn't want to move quickly. And then, you know, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and I were able to reach an agreement uh, on behalf of our countries and presidents to remove 1,300 tons of chemical weapons. That would not have happened if we, uh, immediately if we had bombed. So there was a benefit that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge. But bottom line, bottom line, and I write this in the book, um, the fact that the president didn't wind up bombing and, didn't, and, and was viewed as going to Congress did cost us in perception in the region. And I spent a lot of time trying to uh, address that. It's just a reality. What do you make of the relationship with Saudi Arabia now and the... Uh, What's complicated? Khashoggi, the I mean, I'm about to, in this very room, later today I'll be teaching a course on American power in the 21st century and the tools of diplomacy. And um, nothing, you know, we balance values and we balance interests. Sometimes your interests uh, overpower the values for one reason or another. There are many places where we've had this difficulty. Um, I think the administration has not struck the right balance in in, in Well, they in pretty the much said that values are not, not part of the equation. Not as what we're going yeah. to do here. I think you could have had uh, a better response to it. Uh, but there are, there are interests, David, mm -hmm. that uh, need to be uh, we do have a relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia. We do think it's important. We do believe that um, maintaining that is, uh, uh, is, is key to other objectives that we have in the region. And the same, and, presumably, with Egypt. And 60,000 uh, political the same, prisoners Well, there, Egypt yeah. is, is a pillar with respect to the region in so many different ways. Historically, its relationship with Israel, the protection that it provides, uh, some of the security measures that are taken in the Sinai, other things that happen. These are very important things. So they don't lend themselves to quick and easy sort of you know, bromides that you throw out on the table. But the bottom line is that uh, the United States is now isolated itself through President Trump's approach in foreign policy. It's foreign policy by tweet. I mean, when you have your a distinguished four-star general who is serving as Secretary of Defense. Uh, who got relieved of his command uh, of CENTCOM while you were there. And I think it was over the issue of Iran, right? There were disagreements about... It was about a disagreement of, over whether or not we should be withdrawing in a different way and on a different timetable, et cetera. But I, I think the point is that uh, uh, any serious... Uh, student of foreign policy and diplomacy and of world affairs, anyone, and you hear this more and more now from Republicans, would, would, would say that the United States now is isolating itself and creating uh, conflict rather than finding diplomatic ways to solve problems. 
an uh, example of that is the current situation with China. China is a critical relationship for the United States. And the president is uh, empowering uh, a, a much more confrontational scenario to unfold that will not help us with North Korea, with DPRK, where, in fact, this administration, after all the bluster and, and, and show and tell of this meeting in Singapore, has zero definition of where the weapons with the, are, with, with the North Korea. of how much weaponry they have, of what they're doing today, where we know from our intelligence community that North Korea is continuing to build weapons. They're not testing because they don't need to right now. Right. They're building. And, and so uh, that does not make the region or the world safer. Yeah. And uh, on the North Korean point, uh, we did make concessions. The meeting itself was a concession, something that they've yearned for. It's a huge concession. And the freezing of exercises with South right. Korea. Right. Uh, we made concessions. That, that's absolutely accurate. And by the way, Kim Jong-un's father and grandfather, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-sun, both of them desperately wanted to have a meeting with the president and have a summit and get together. Uh, and presidents, Republican and Democrat alike, conservative, liberal alike, said, no, we're not going to do that until we have clarity about the direction we're moving in. You know, I listened uh, to you, and you talk about <clears throat> the, the sort of uh, lack of sophistication of the president's foreign policy, but I, I imagine... I'm not calling it sophistication. I mean, that's one of those elite words that... Right. Well, that's where I'm off. going. Well, I'm not... I, I don't believe it's a lack of sophistication. It's a lack of basic knowledge. All right. It's a lack okay, of very simple realities. That's but his, all. Uh, his supporters would say, uh, you know what, all you smart guys, you vote for the war in Iraq. Uh, uh, no, I didn't. What I voted for was a process that President George W. Bush didn't follow. I voted for a series of promises that empowered the president to leverage Saddam Hussein to let the inspectors in. And if he didn't, we had the threat of force hanging over that. What we were told was they would exhaust the remedies of diplomacy, they would bring together a legitimate coalition, they wouldn't go forward without, uh, you know, legitimate, and they, they, they just didn't do that. They, they broke those, those You promises. called it the worst mistake of your... Well, it was the worst vote. It turned out to be the worst vote, absolutely, yeah. uh, because it, it, it empowered him to do something that where they didn't follow the things they said they were going to do. So, yes, uh, I regret that. But because, you know, what, what people would say is now we're in year 17 in Afghanistan, we're in year, what, 15 in... Uh... Yeah, but there's a difference. I mean, uh, Afghanistan is not Vietnam. Afghanistan does not have to be Iraq and shouldn't be. Uh, but there's a reason we have a predicament with, with Afghanistan. We went into Afghanistan for completely legitimate and appropriate mm -hmm. reasons, David. Yeah. Afghanistan is the place from which we were attacked. Right. In the biggest attack since World War II, uh, since Pearl Harbor. We responded by going after Osama bin Laden because the Taliban did not agree to help us uh, solve the problem. What happened is the, 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 all the neocons then turned their attention away from, from Afghanistan to Iraq, which became the next step in a sequence of proactive efforts to remake the Middle right. East. That was the failure, and that brought about a lack of any strategic uh, implementation 
in, in Afghanistan, so we didn't really have a strategy. Your, your experience in Vietnam, and you came to prominence, we'll talk about this a little bit more, uh, as a decorated uh, serviceman who came back and became a very, very uh, powerful and articulate opponent uh, of the war. And, and part of the premise was understanding the limits of American power and the appropriate use of it. Uh, yeah. Iraq, how would you how would you characterize what happened there? And was that an example? Well, I think Iraq is one of the worst foreign policy mistakes the country has ever made. And we're paying the consequences of it today in the uh, exacerbation of tensions between Shia and Sunni. Uh, and we're paying the price uh, in terms of the dislocation of the region. So uh, it's a, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of argument left in America about the downside implications of what Iraq brought the world. You know, but there were, after Vietnam, there was a reticence about the use of American Well, I was very power. clear even then, David. You asked me about my history yeah. back yeah, then. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I came back, and I was very much opposed to the war. We were lied to. The American people were lied to about the war in Vietnam, and the evidence now is overwhelming about that. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon Papers, yes, the, sure. the history, even I mean, Robert McNamara wrote a memoir in which he admitted that they knew things weren't going to work out, that it was wrong, but he never came out and said that, that mm -hmm. period of time. And, and what astounded me, reading the best book that I've read, on, one of the best books certainly on Vietnam, is Bright Shining Lie, mm -hmm. uh, Neil Sheehan which brilliantly laid out how early the lying began and the distortions began, the exaggerations that led us deeper and deeper. So when you read that history, you can get pretty angry about what happened that produced 58,600-some right. names on the wall. And I think that, but, but I always said, even at that time, I'm not a pacifist. I believe there are times when right. America has to stand up and fight and take measures. But not everything is Vietnam. And Afghanistan was not Vietnam. We have to make sure it isn't made into right, but, that. But after all these years, you, do, you know, the president has tapped into something, which no, is a we sense of be, weariness. Yeah, but everybody's uh, about, expressed that. About I mean, that. We used to have that d debate in the, in the situation room. The, the issue isn't whether or not we're weary or we ought to be there. We ought to be getting out over a period of time in the right way. But the right way was for the president to use the leverage of America's departure to actually negotiate with the Taliban and do so in a way uh, that sustains the sacrifice and the efforts made to, to create something more stable and lasting. Now, we cannot go on forever. I think people know that. But we can go on long enough to leverage a legitimate way of protecting America's interests both in the region and against counterterrorism and ungoverned spaces, which is what has kept yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, there. that's the key is that Americans, uh, I think in large numbers, question what the American interest is at this point. The American interest at this point is uh, several fold, but I think the most important is in maintaining a sufficient platform to be able to prevent ungoverned spaces from again becoming a uh, a, a place from which the United States is attacked. There are ways we can do that much cheaper, much more effectively, but with the Taliban uh, as, an, as an existing uh, threat, uh, what we ought to be doing is working, frankly, with China, with Russia, with Iran, with others in the region, Pakistan particularly, to leverage accountability 
for a process that actually w could be sustainable. And, and the problem is now you can't have that discussion with Iran. You can barely have that discussion with Russia with this president who, who, who has to avoid public meetings now and so forth because of the suspicions of his relationship. Um, do you ever talk to, have you spoken with Mattis? Have you spoken with Tillerson? I spoke with General Mattis uh, well, well, quite some time ago, last year or maybe at some event. I think we bumped into each other in Munich or somewhere like that. But I haven't had any recent conversation with him. And what about Tillerson? After I have not had any conversation with him, period. Yeah. Um, so I was struck in your book, we talked about your testimony uh, before the Senate uh, as a young man. Uh, and uh, uh, you did, uh, you attracted the attention of 60 Minutes. Morley Safer interviewed you. Uh, and he said, uh, are you going to run for president someday? And you were just a young guy back from Vietnam. But that was the power uh, of your testimony. You did run for president. Yeah, quite you, a few you, years you later. Came, uh, you came, you came, you came painfully close. You joked that you, you, you were present for three hours when the exit poll suggested you were going to win that election. Uh, you still thinking about it? Uh, I said, David, that, that I haven't... Uh, uh, taking anything off the table, that doesn't mean I'm running around actively, you know, preparing or something. But time is... Uh, but, you know, well, I think, I'm not sure. I think that, look, here's what I think is important. I don't think it's important to be talking about who's in, who's out, the old who's up, who's down routine, and polls at this point are meaningless. What's important to talk about is where do we need to go? Where do we need to go as a country? We are not doing the great things that America should be doing. And, and we have greatness in us. As a, we're an amazing nation. I, I love our country. Love what we've done historically. And, and, I mean, we're the country that invented the Internet. We're the country that went to the moon. We're the country that has put us on the brink of having the first generation of children born AIDS-free in Africa. Mm -hmm. We stopped Ebola where we need I mean, you can run a long list. But you can't name one single, and I can't, major national infrastructure program in our nation that matches what other countries are doing right. around the world. We, we have a cyber challenge. The, the threat from cyber is greater than the threat from a nuclear weapon in many ways. You can bring a country to its heels, but we're not bringing together all the relevant nations to create the kind of negotiation that we did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s on nuclear weapons about cyber. We're, climate change. Yeah. I mean, I've got grandkids. You've got kids. I do. I, mean, I think about it all the time. But I'm just laughing because you don't sound like a guy who's taking it off the table. You sound like a guy who'd no, really I'm like to be in the middle of the debate. Here's the deal. I'm going to be in the middle of the debate no matter what, period, because I always have been. And I believe more than ever we need to be considering a different set of options. Whether, but there are a lot of people out there, David, running around. I know. Capable. Well, let let go. Two, we power. could finish the whole show by name, just listing yeah, them. Yeah, we could. Um, <laughs> but you, more power to it. I, I but think. Let me, what's your advice to them? You, you, you know, one of the things I loved about your book, partly because I've lived these experiences, was you wrote about the process of running for president and how brutal it is emotionally. It's exhilarating. And for a oh, lot, stuff. but it's, but it's, stuff. but physically, but look. emotionally, uh, and I don't think people who say they're going to run for president actually know it. It's like the astronaut program. You can be in the simulator all you want, but once you get out there, yeah. you know, it's different. 
And um, you know what you, I think you have that experience. Go. So what would you advise them? Well, I just everybody's got to do their own thing. I'm not going to. But as a candidate, what 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 is what well, value? Well, I think we have to advance. I, I'd stay on the issues that are important to our country right now. I don't think that you know this is not just about being opposed to what President Trump is doing. This is about being for these choices that I'm talking about. I mean, David, when we have the best scientists in the world come together and they tell us, you guys have 12 years to prevent the next 0.5 degrees centigrade right. increase in temperature before there are catastrophic consequences. Right. When you hear that, I, I start I looking for that response and I don't see it right now. We're not close. We're heading to four degrees centigrade right now in this century. And so we have to do what they said was unprecedented steps Right. in order to get this, this right. I, and I, so will, and I, I, would, I would give you uh, several extra minutes to talk about that if you said you were running for president, and we'll come back and talk about that. But, um, but what I'm asking you right now, let me, let me put it another way. What do you know now about that process that you didn't know then going in? Well, first of all, I, I gave this advice to President Obama when he was still a senator thinking of running. We were, I was living under the constraints of campaign finance reform and we could not run a national 50-state campaign, and I wanted to desperately. I had to pull out of Colorado and pull out of Virginia uh, three weeks before the election. And uh, the reason is we didn't have enough money to go to all the places that we needed to fight for. I lost them not by much, and I was the first Democrat to win Fairfax County since Lyndon Johnson. We, 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 even though we were getting pounded for three weeks. So I say, you have to go outside that system. You have to rely on a broader base of raising funds in order to be able to compete. That's number one. Number two, you got to fight back immediately. We had a big fight in our campaign about the swift boat attacks. Yeah. And, and we had the, you know, all the media, the general normal media, as we knew it then, carried the truth in writing about what happened and debunked a lot of the attacks. But when the attacks would take place through paid this television... This was the swift boat veterans for truth that were created to attack your... War and, and it wasn't Let me ask you about that. I mean, you must have been, and you wrote a little bit about this, but you, you risked your own life and almost lost it. You saw others die. You lost friends uh, in that war. You, you won a silver star, a bronze star, three right. purple hearts. And if I were you, I would have been freaking outraged. Well, I was. And, and we expressed it. I did express it. The problem is I didn't do it on a large enough stage with enough repetition. I didn't do it through the advertising and we should have. And I write in the book. I'm very clear about it. I take, the, I take the blame. Look, I take it. It's my campaign. I'm responsible. But you asked me what I learned. That's one of the things I learned. You know, but I would the... never allow minutes to go by now without adequately putting to bed anything that you know to be untrue. You have to do that. But if you're a candidate... You know, the hard thing well, in real time is, is how do you measure a campaign manager? How right? do you, but how do you not, how do you decide what's not a rabbit that you're chasing down the hole, but something meaningful that, that, that needs to be addressed? Because, you know, you have, for example, the president. Anybody who wants to run against the president, and since you haven't taken it off the table, you could be one of them. No, Any, not, anybody uh, who, anybody who's, running, uh, who's running against the president, he, he is a master at, Ch at, at making unsubstantiated charges and forcing people to respond to them. You saw that with uh, your Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, the well, I think he's a, I, th I think he's a, he's a bully, and I think there are plenty of different ways to handle bullies. 
Uh, I don't think it is necessary to, uh, you know, you don't win elections by behaving the same way as the other people, number one. You certainly don't win elections by just looking at the last election. That's a mistake many people in politics always make. It's never about the last election. It's the next one. It's about the future. Right, yes. And you've got to be looking ahead. So I think there are a lot of lessons in all of that, Dave. But look, let me, I want to come back to something that I think is so critical here. I write about this. I have a chapter about my relationship with John McCain and what we yes. did together on Vietnam. Yeah. That's what we have to get back to. I was privileged to be part of a United States Senate that worked. The rules of the Senate have not changed appreciably with the minor exception of the judges piece. They're the same rules. So what's changed? It's the people. Now, I saw that change begin to take place in the, in the 1990s, 1994 specifically with the Gingrich Revolution. Then you went into the Tea Party. Then you went to the Freedom Caucus. And then you basically had a hostile takeover of the Republican Party by Donald Trump. And the reason for that is that people are angry. The reason for Bernie Sanders, the reason people are angry, they're legitimately angry. When, when you know, 51% of America's income goes to 1% of Americans and people don't feel they're getting ahead and they're downsizing and they're downsizing their dreams because they're forced to, that is not a political equation that works. You know this, you're a student of political science. Our equation is not working for right, center, and left. And if we don't come together around a set of choices for our country that address real issues and make a difference, our democracy is cooked. So I, 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 I look at it and say to myself, you know, there are all kinds of ways to do that. You don't have to run for president to do that. Yeah. I mean, my, my, this book describes a life of activism. I've been doing this ever since I came back from Vietnam. And the first thing I did was not protest Vietnam. The first thing I did was be active in Earth Day when we kicked right. out seven of 12 members of Congress who were the worst votes on the environment. And we created the EPA. We didn't even have an environmental protection agency in America till citizens came out and did something. So here's, to me, this is the most important thing of all. In the last election, president, the turnout was 54.2%. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, it was 50, it was 63. Five or but nine. you saw a, a near record turnout in the yeah, uh, but guess what? Elections. Yes, but the near record turnout. You know what it was, David? Forty-nine percent. You know what the youth vote went from? Nineteen percent to thirty-one percent. Uh huh. That doesn't cut it. <laughs> so my point is, we've got to generate energy around things that actually affect people's lives in a way that they're invested enough to number one believe in working for it, and number two believe that the people that they're voting for will actually follow through on those promises. You know, uh, one of the people, uh, first of all, uh, I agree with everything you just said. I, I, I also admire as a lifelong observer and practitioner of this that I asked one question and you asked the one you wanted to answer. <laughs> so that was, I, admi I said that admiringly, okay? But uh, and the, the question was really, how do you judge? You know, you, you, your swift boat thing example is clear. It went to your core value, your, you know, the core of who you were. It was the defining yeah. event in your life. Uh, but there's so many well, that's distractions why I felt the way that... I, I write about it in the book, and that's why I felt the way. But come back again to John McCain and I. Our country was completely divided over Vietnam, we were still at war with each other here at home in 1990, literally. 
John McCain and I, who came from totally different places politically, flew to Baghdad, flew to, 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 to uh, the Middle East, uh, and we were sitting opposite each other. We had a conversation, and we agreed we had to work to end the war here at home and to change the relationship with Vietnam. For 10 years, we worked together across party lines, yeah. across ideology, and, and in the end, we were able to change the relationship with Vietnam. Did you ever Vietnam. have a You must have had discussions with him. Um, you were protester. You were leading protests no. at the Capitol while he was in, in, in a, a prison in Hanoi. Correct. And the, you know, what, what you did, and I remember it very well. I remember watching, I was, uh, you were arresting in this testimony and what was going on outside was moving. Um, but there were, there were, it created quite, the country was deeply divided over the war. There were a lot of veterans right. who thought you were denigrated because you Correct. described some of the atrocities right. that you had been, right. re, had been reported to you and uh, people felt like you were denigrating Correct. their service. And, and I, I, I had to think that he might have been felt that way initially John as, did as well. initially. He was suspicious and we were suspicious of each other, I suppose. I had huge respect for what he had been through and, and, and what all the prisoners had been through. And it was very difficult to bridge the divide, but we did bridge the divide, David. I mean, I stood in the Hanoi Hilton with John McCain. Yeah. We stood together in this crazy place where he had endured these horrible things, and we found the common ground. We agreed on what we were trying to do. That's what we have to get back to in the Senate. You actually, you wrote, you wrote that uh, you actually uh, considered, and this has been reported, uh, him as a vice presidential yeah. nominee. How, how serious were you about that? I was that? serious about considering it. I mean, looking at it, uh, we examined it. Uh, I think that uh, we both found that it had greater difficulties than at first appearance it might seem because of the party, the conventions, the structure, how you, know, you introduce he, hey, Four it. years later, he wanted four Joe years later, Lieberman he went, to be... He, he wanted he, to do the same and thing. And he couldn't do it. He, he decided he couldn't get... He wanted get to do it, Lieberman and I through. thought very seriously about it. But John, John was not prepared to do some of the things. So, as I said to people, we, 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 we dated. We didn't get married. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We barely yeah. dated. We kind of... Could, could you... Are those kinds of relationships possible in the Senate? Because the one thing no, you didn't mention, you said it's about people, but the other thing that's changed is the media environment. Like I often wonder, would Richard Nixon have resigned if he had Fox News, if he had social media, if he question. had uh, Breitbart? And I know this the is a question. Is, I think, I think, uh, I think the answer is yes. And I think the pivotal moment in that, as we may ultimately see a pivotal moment, I don't know, I'm not predicting this, yeah. but uh, President Trump's instinct obviously would be to fight uh, if there were high crimes and misdemeanors and an impeachment process. But in the end, if the party leadership sees their party being destroyed and their chances for re-election absolutely being uh, annihilated, you watch yeah. how fast uh, things pull away. This goes to the point we were talking about uh before, but the, 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 the thing that makes it difficult is, although Nixon still had majority support among Republicans when he resigned, so I guess there was some parallel, but I just, this media environment is so different now, and I know you're gonna have a conference right here at Yale on, on the, on the state of democracy, not just here, but around the world, and one of those challenges is this media environment that feeds off of, we create these silos, 
often we're more but, but we're, we're know, better affirmed than informed. Know, but you know, we don't hear enough. I think, David, is why a different approach is in fact in our interests. Why does it make a difference to the United States? Uh, for instance, President Obama clearly stated he was opposed to uh, Brexit. He was a Remainer. Brexit, uh, I still believe, is, is going to be destructive to Europe and to what and we And the need. Brexit vote, the, 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 the leave vote in, on Brexit, very much parallel the, the uh, Trump vote Correct. here. I mean, there is a commonality among the constituencies but, that are being moved by this sort of nationalist. But here's why I think there is this commonality and... and why it's grown in some places. You see, you see danger signs in Italy, you see them in France, you see them in Germany, you see them in, in uh, Hungary, you see them elsewhere, in Britain, elsewhere. And the reason is that people, people's lives have not improved. In any of those places, people don't see that globalization and these forces well, which are easy goblins. they also see that some people's lives have, and, and they some see enormous- Way up at the right, top. Right. When, as I said, when 51% of America's income goes to 1% of Americans, right. you got a reason to be angry. Well, this is true in other countries also. The, I mean, there is, a, there is a, this elite point of view that sort of, you know, has, has sustained an equation that is not working for enough people. That has to change, but it can change without disrupting uh, the world uh, in the ways that we see. I don't think you... Uh, are, uh, I mean, President Xi and President Putin are both openly articulating their new narrative. And the new narrative of this century right now is that the liberal order of the West right. is decaying and fraying, that the United States is in decline, and we are the model for the world. Now, that is what we have to figure out. You know, we have to counter that more aggressively. And it's not being empowered to be countered. I don't see, I mean, you, you know, I, I, I'm looking for, where's the voice that you would have heard uh, from Ronald Reagan? Yeah. Or Harry Truman or right. Franklin Roosevelt. They would have opposed that. And I think that, that today people need to see a better set of choices that are actually passive, that, that you can implement that will make a difference in their lives. I'm just saying that the screen, the filter is, is more difficult than it ever was before because of the media environment. You know, I wanted to ask you about this author's note in your book. But don't book. you think, David, don't you think, sorry to interrupt you, but don't you think that that's becoming a question now, more in doubt because of what's happened with the social media and the feeling people have of abuse? Yeah, I, think they're I, looking I do. I, I think uh, it, it, is, it is complex to wrestle that to the ground, you know? I and, and so I, I think this is one of the challenges for, for democracies, and Putin has obviously figured out how to manipulate that environment to try and un, un, undo the liberal uh, order. So but we need to put a better set of choices on the table. Uh, you wrote in your author's note, you wrote a great author's note to your book, and you explained how that experience in Vietnam uh, changed your outlook. And the, the book itself speaks to it, saying every day uh, is extra. And in it, you said, finally, every day is extra means living with the liberating truth of knowing that there are worse things than losing an argument or even an election. You know, um, I uh, enjoyed working with you, and we've had good conversations, and you've, uh, I've seen you take on some extraordinary 
battles. One of the critiques of your race for president, and I wonder if you feel it yourself, is that you were too constrained, that you weren't as, uh, you weren't as uh, open and as uh, free as perhaps you should have been. Uh, and that ultimately hurt you as a candidate. It allowed you to be portrayed as the, right. as the windsurfing, flip-flopping, yep. cautious politician. Do you, do you have thoughts about that? Yes. Uh, I think I learned an enormous amount. I think I'm a different person today. I think that I conducted myself as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, applying the lessons that I learned with respect to that freedom to just go with your gut. And I certainly acted as Secretary of State in that way. Uh, and uh, I, I do regret, I think I was uh, a little bit constrained in some ways that I shouldn't have been. It's period. tough because you know, you're out yeah. there on the ledge yeah. and you know, the, the, all the advice and counsel you get is watch where you step. Yeah, well, I think more than that. I, one of the things that just got drummed into me is don't be your own campaign manager. You can't yeah. do that. You've probably said I, it to candidates. A thousand you? times. You've said it a thousand times. Yeah. And, and people kept saying, no, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, you know, you well, I learned. I learned. You know what? Make your gut decision and stick with your gut decision, and that's the most important thing you can do in life, period. So this is Maury's in New Haven. And I'm given to believe that you may have clocked a few, a few, few hours here few during hours your here. Uh, during your academic years. What, know, what is uh, this place? This is a, it's a huge Yale tradition, Maury's. You know the Whiffenpoof song from the tables down at Maury's to the place where Louis dwells. Um, and uh, the Whiffenpoofs sing here every Monday night. I think they still do that. And people come and listen, sit around, eat. It's it's a lot of fun. And drink. And how? Oh yeah, I, which is why I can't really remember. <laughs> so I, I, you know, um, just in reading your book, um, your your childhood it seems like this weird amalgam of of like the Great Gatsby's, Great Gatsby and Home Alone, in that um, you know part of your life was your mom's family was in right. Europe, they had this estate in Europe, and you spent a lot of time there and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and then you also spent a lot of time in prep school, starting at a very early age. Young which, age, much too young. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. sounded lonely to me. Well, there were times, I, was, I write about it in the book, when I first got dropped off at school in Switzerland, when my dad was going to Berlin to be the legal advisor to the high commissioner there. Of Germany, uh, I, I I didn't know where I didn't know where Switzerland was. I mean, I really didn't was not prepared for the abruptness of my parents getting in a car and driving off, and there I am. So I write about. I mean, I think I cried for three weeks. I was miserable. I, I wanted to go home, homesick. But you get I got through it, and and I look back on it. I say, okay, you know, that kind of toughened you up, and. Um, but tough. That's but I'd been to I'd been to a bunch of schools. By the time I was in the eighth grade, I think I'd been to seven schools. Yeah. So I kept meeting friends, making friends, and then saying goodbye to friends, and it was disruptive. But I don't I don't complain about it. I mean, I it was a life that a lot of young people who are the kids of foreign service officers live, and 
People don't realize that. I mean, you're pulling up roots, you're packing, you're moving on to the next kind of place. Um, uh, the longest I had stayed in any school was when I went to high school. So you, yeah, it was it was noted at the time you became Secretary of State that your 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 uh, father was uh, worked in elements of the Foreign Service and so on. So you were raised with that during formative years. We were, he was in the Foreign Service for about ten years, and it happened to be the time that I was eleven years old until I was twenty twenty one years old. Yeah. Did being overseas uh, how did how did it expand your well, it opened my view to the world, David. I mean, it was amazingly exciting and significant. I mean, as a young kid, 11 years old, I get this printed letter from my mom with instructions for how to get to Berlin. I'm in Switzerland. So I get on a train. I go to, from, from one part of Switzerland, Montreux or something, to Zurich and Basel. I change trains. I go to Frankfurt. I get on a train in Frankfurt. I would report to the military uh, uh, office there because it was all run by the U.S. Army back then and I get on a special American train that goes through the east sector of you know the Soviet Union to Berlin which is surrounded an occupied city and I and I'm and Russian soldiers and how old were you I was 11 years old 12 years old and, and you did Russian this on soldiers your own. did this on my own it was time to go home so um, and Russian soldiers are rapping on the window with their guns when you, I was looking out at night, very excited, and they'd make me put the curtain down, and I sat like this, face to face with an American soldier who was the courier, who had this huge valise, leather suitcase, uh, padlocked to his leg. He was carrying all the documents, the diplomatic documents to Berlin. And we get off the train in Berlin, and the American Army Band is there playing Stars and Stripes forever, and you know, so it was great. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. I rode my bike into East Berlin, and my dad got so pissed at me that he pulled my passport and yanked. I was grounded because I didn't know it, but I was, you know, a little too adventuresome. But all in all, I look back on it as a as a great eye opener to other people, to other cultures, stuff, other languages to viewing the world not just you know with the pride and and the special lens we have as Americans but viewing it also from the way those folks saw it. I mean I actually played in German bunkers when I was a kid. You um, talk about the, your your parents respective families because they had distinctly different stories. Well my 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 dad uh, lost his father when he when my dad was uh, six years old. This uh, is an interesting story because as you write in the book, and I recall it from that time, you learned about that, about the circumstances surrounding your grandfather's death when you were running for president. We talked earlier about the well, pressures yeah. and the unique elements of running for president. One is that people start foraging into your past. Oh yeah, everything. I mean, it's, it's one big public proctology exam. <laughs> you go through this thing and uh, so there I am sitting there being interviewed and I'm being asked about my, one of my grandparents uh, and you know, I learned that he had Jewish background, that he had come from the Czech Republic. They knew which city, town he'd come from. It was, it was a great education. We had, I had, and I write about it in the book, I had a sense that my grandmother might have been 
uh, Jewish and changed their name, et cetera. But they came over to America in 1898 uh, in an age of rampant anti-Semitism. And, and, so you think uh, they, they, they wanted to assimilate I and get along? They, I think they wanted a life of change and transition where you weren't persecuted yeah. and, and discriminated against. And that's what I think. I don't know. Yeah. Because my dad never knew his father, really. At age six, he lost him. Uh, and then his sister, a year later, came down with polio, um, and she uh, and 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 his mother, my father's mother, took him to Europe looking for a cure to the polio. So my dad spent a number of years abroad, and then came back to Phillips Academy, Phillips uh, Andover, uh, went to Yale undergrad, and then went on to Harvard Law School. And um, you, the, the my mom the way in which your there. grandfather died was. Was, was shocking, I'm sure, that he committed suicide and, and at the, I think, Copley Plaza Hotel. Uh, it was in, in totally shocking. To a place you, you, you How noted. How many times you I must have made a thousand speeches hotel. there. Yes. And it was really quite shocking to learn that he went into the men's room and blew his brains out. And I, I, I have no idea why. My dad, I never learned until I was 16 years old that he had died uh, violently, and I did learn that. But, um, uh, you know, we never knew anything about him. I just never knew. Yeah. It, was a, it was a learning experience. My mother, on the other hand, came from an old Boston family uh, who had been involved in China trade and, and much of the history of our state. Uh, and uh, my back grandfather... Back the founders and... Back to, yeah, yeah the first... The first Governor of Massachusetts, uh, John Winthrop, who was the the uh, who, who delivered the sermon on the Arabella, the ship coming into the harbor, that is famous. That was quoted by Kennedy and Reagan. Is the we shall be as if a city upon the hill. Well, he delivered that uh, sermon on the ship, and he it turns out was my great grandfather eight times over or something. So we had a public side and a very private side from two different experiences. And my mother's father, my grandfather, was working abroad at the onset of World War II. My mother was, as the onset came, had trained to be a nurse and she was working in the Montparnasse station in Paris and she escaped in front of the Germans the night before they came into Paris. She and her sister and friends rode their bikes and foraged their way across France, and she came to America via Portugal. And um, politics, clearly you, your, your parents were very aware, and so politics must have been something that was discussed around your, your house. It was, well, politics less... Um, Foreign, foreign affairs were discussed around the table. I mean, I became a Democrat when my two-year-older sister, Peggy, dragged me around Georgetown with a cup in her hand collecting money for Adlai Stevenson in 1952. And uh, that was my first understanding of politics. And I went to Eisenhower's uh, inauguration, watched the parade like everybody else. Yeah, and... and um Years later, before you got to college, you had an encounter with a president. An amazing encounter. I, I write in the book, I think, I, I've said to a lot of people, I've really led a Forrest Gumpian life. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it, and, and, and when I was 18 years old, I wound up in a circumstance where I went 
sailing with the President of the United States, Jack Kennedy. And I met him in the house. He, he, I was, drove up to the house, one Secret Service guy right in front of the house. Walk, I said, I'm John Kerry. He said, oh, okay, yeah, you're expected. I walk in. There's one guy standing by this window looking out at the water longingly. He w turns around, walks over. It's President Kennedy. And I was so, I didn't know anything. And I said, hello, Mr. Kennedy. Of course, you know, not using the traditional Mr. President. I didn't even know you did that back then. And he was wonderful. He, was, he could not have been more putting this young guy at ease. He said, where are you going to college? And I grimaced. I said, I'm going to go to Yale because he's a Harvard guy. He said, no, 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 don't worry. He said, uh, I'm a Yale man too now because that was the year that he famously received his honorary degree and said, I now have the best of two worlds, a Harvard education <laughs> yes. and a Yale degree. Yeah. It was a great moment. Um, and, uh, and you came here. I got the sense that from your own writing that, um, that uh, academics were not your sole concern when you were <laughs> No, I was, I, was, uh, I was mostly, I mean, I played a couple sports here, two sports. I played varsity soccer for several years, and I played JV hockey, and then senior year I went out for lacrosse, and I made the team, and I played lacrosse. And I did a lot of extracurricular activities. Um, and so I, 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 I did exactly what's on that table right there that Mark Twain suggested. Never let school get in the way of an education, <laughs> and I yeah. didn't. But one of the things you did was you had a, uh, a, uh, an encounter. One of your uh, friends here, maybe a roommate, uh, had uh, two uncles in the, in the administration in a high yeah, my, place. Yeah, one of my roommates yeah. had... Uh, was the nephew of McGeorge and Bill Bundy. Yeah. Who were deeply involved in McGeorge Bundy was a national, national security, security advisor to, to President, President Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. And that's that's how you began thinking about enlisting and going to Vietnam. Well it's part of it, David. I think I I write in the book that um, I am the son of greatest generation parents. And as I've explained my, I mean my dad left Harvard Law and and enlisted as, as a, uh, a young cadet in the Army Air Corps. And it was 1939. I mean, it was early on in, in, in that. Um, so they had a sense of duty and service and a sense of priority for America. And I think that was passed on to me. But it was passed on through a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of inputs. Uh, and... Uh, you know, when I enlisted, it was 1965, and we'd had the Tonkin Gulf incident. Lyndon Johnson asked for 500,000 more troops. Uh, we all of us suddenly here at Yale had our lives turned topsy-turvy. Do you, do you get drafted? Do you go in? Uh, do you, because a lot of privileged You go to grad school. Do you get married? Yeah, these were the choices. But in 65, it wasn't as clear that the opposition to the war, the sense of, there were just a lot of questions about it. And it was 1967, I think, that the major sort of draft card burnings began. And then 1968, there was literally a sort of revolution. But by that time you were I was committed. in service, I was yeah. in. I, I yeah. reported for duty in 1966 at OCS, Officers Candidate School. I was commissioned at the end of 66. I went to my first duty post at the beginning of 67. And this is when the transition was taking place. By 68, I, I had gone to Vietnam. 
and uh, uh, and a lot had happened in '68. The, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, the turbulence of the Chicago Convention. Uh, it was a time of enormous uh, upheaval in our country, in music, in culture, in education, in, in politics. And you were taking all that in even as you were in the service? Oh, hugely. Yeah, I was devouring it because I was obviously already bitten by an interest in, in public life and politics. And we all were uh, focused on it. And, and when I came back, uh, we all worked hard to try to end the war. You know, um, this is a obviously provocative question, but it needs to be asked. The president um, has said that he knows better than the generals and um, and is, uh, has been pretty critical of, uh, of, of the military. He, he didn't serve, uh, famously didn't serve. And I'm, I'm wondering uh, how you and others who did, and, and were in the same position in that you were a person of privilege, you probably could have found a way out if you wanted to find a way out. You didn't find a way out. I thought it was important to serve. And I, I believed, and I still believe that. I urge young people, whenever I talk to people in the country, people should serve. Not necessarily, you don't have to go in the military. I think we ought to have a service structure in our country where everybody puts in a little time. You work with kids, you work with underprivileged, you work in the city, you work in a hospital, you work an environment project. You do something for the public good beyond yourself. And I think uh, you would broaden the base of the people who serve in the military if you did that. Today we have a 1% service in yeah. our military, and that does not invest you in the public policy consequences uh, of an Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. But bottom line, uh, I, I, I think that with respect to President Trump, uh, I don't object to a choice per se that many people made in that generation. I object to the hypocrisy. I object to pretending something that isn't true. And the notion that he couldn't serve because of bone spurs, because we all know that he got a doctor who signed off as a favor to his father, uh, that that was the reason. That's a lie. That's another lie. Way back in the consequence of this man's life, the lies were sort of already building up. That I object to when he presents himself and says, I know better than the generals. No, you don't, Mr. President. You will never know what it is like to be in a foxhole, to be in the front lines, to be in an ambush, to be shot at, to see your best friend uh, killed in war. And, and uh, you know, I object to that. You came back, as you point out, and you, and you, you became uh, a nationally known uh, advocate. And the pivotal event was this hearing uh, in the Senate. And uh, I had a chance to look at a film of the Everybody remembers the one line, uh, which you you can recite. But how do you uh, ask a man to be the last man to die, die for a mistake? But uh, the rest of it was a searing indictment of the policymakers of that time, of principal figures in the government, and by implication of the people who were sitting in front of you, yeah. uh, sitting in chairs that you would once that you would come to sit in later in the Senate, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and it struck me watching all of this that, um, you know, we have, we have young people today 
who are kind of rattling the cages of Washington. Um, you know, this newly elected representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has created quite uh, a stir by calling for a, you know, Green New Deal and, and uh, Medicare for All and so on. And uh, there's this great concern. Is this, are they driving the party to the left and so on? And I'm wondering if you see any of yourself in these young people who are, who are agitating for change and really challenging the status quo in Washington? Well, I think there'd be a kind of arrogance to, 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 to see oneself. Or to see no, but I mean, I don't, you, I don't do that, you, but I do see what I see. Uh, I respect enormously and welcome, which is a, an enthusiasm and an energy and an honesty and a readiness to change the country, to move the country. The debate is up to all of the rest of America. Nobody's, you know, it's a very healthy debate. It's, I welcome uh, this new energy, and all of us should. I mean, this is what brought us a new Congress. Uh, people participating because people are willing to put themselves on the line. So to me, um, uh, that's a welcome event uh, for, 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 for all of us. But we'll sort this out, David. Nobody should be sitting around worrying about we're going to go too far here or go there. Right now, this is just a beginning. But new ideas are needed. People need to start kicking the, you know, the, the tires and looking at what the options are because we need to fix the place. I, I said earlier, things are broken right now. And if we don't, pay, I mean, I remember when Ben Franklin, I don't remember when it happened, but Ben Franklin, <laughs> when Ben Franklin, I remember the history that, you know, when Franklin walked out of Constitution Hall after our founding fathers had finished that summer of hard work to come up with a constitution, and, yeah. and, and they, late at night, and a crowd is assembled outside, and a woman shouts at him and says, tell us, Dr. Franklin, what do we have, a monarchy or a republic? And he says... A republic, republic if you can, if keep, you it. can keep it. Yeah. Those are just searing words to me. Yeah. If you can keep it. Back yeah. then, they knew the challenge. And, and throughout the, as you get into 1789, you go later when they were redrafting uh, and, and on into the 1800s. It was a tough, you know, uh, it was a street brawl politics back then, too. It, it, and they worried about authoritarianism. They worried about the popular kind of uprising. They, they wanted to create a system where we could balance these passions. And unfortunately, we've created a system today through too much money, through gerrymandering, and through this ideological orthodoxy that is governing things. We've created a system which uh, is gridlocked, delivering nothing. And we have to break out of this. But I, I remember... Uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, your testimony, and I remember the uh, sit-in on the mall, and and I remember people uh, saying this is a bunch of radicals, long-haired radicals, and so on. Isn't it? Isn't that the way of the country that the young are always the ones who kind of the challenge young, our assumptions? And more power to that. Yes, I agree. And I, every campus I go to, every time I talk to an audience, I point out that look the civil rights movement of the 1960s. We sent buses from right here, over here on High Street. We sent buses. We raised the money and people got volunteered. People went down south to break the back of Jim Crow in the United States. 
I remember driving south uh, in, a, in a vacation in, in the springtime and, and seeing the first time ever signs that said, no colored, white only. I was stunned. I mean, here I was this northern kid. I'd never been there. And, and, and it, I said, this is America? Are you kidding? Then in, in the war, in Vietnam, we saw a racism. We saw the draft get diverted into bringing the kids out of South, out of South uh, Chicago or out of you know, Harlem and places. And we had a complete uh, racist uh, reality to how life was when people came back from serving yeah. in the military. But it was young people. Young who, people broke that. Young did. people changed yeah. it. Young people brought us the environment movement. Young people brought the peace movement. Young people brought the women's movement. Young people... Uh, really, uh, every major shift gets driven. Now, uh, I think young energy is going to be critical to, to, to helping to put us on a better path. You and I both remember uh, as formative the uh, Kennedy campaign of 1960 where he talked about a new generation of leadership. Do you see that as an emerging theme? Uh, among well, I think it's always, a, I think it's always, there's always turnover, David. There's always a movement. Um, if you're getting at whether or not uh, that's the sine qua non or the essential ingredient of the, of, of the election, I don't know the answer to that. I think that things are broken enough right now, not just here at home, but on a global basis, that it's possible people may be saying, you know, well, we need, you know, somebody knows how to fix it. We need some experience. We've got to make the trains run on time. We've got to fix the place. Um, I don't know the answer to that. What honestly, do you make about uh, of this phenomenon around uh, Beto O'Rourke, who was a three-term congressman, lost terrific. a race yeah. in Texas, and yet emerged as a uh, a national figure, and 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 is considered a potentially ser a very serious candidate for president? I, I don't find that surprising because I think the ingredients of, of his race, uh, running and and winning as many votes as he did in Texas. Uh, might be translatable to winning some other places in the country. What do you think important. he, why do you think he did? Did what? Why do you think he did so well? Well, I think, I think he, I think there's several reasons. One is he was running against one of the most, uh, what can I say, uh, uh, motivating forces <laughs> in the Republican Party. Very elegant. <laughs> uh, to, uh, uh, to be active, but also because he had a politics of, of uh, looking ahead, a politics of the future, a politics of bringing people together, of solving problems, of believing in America, of, of people, giving people a sense that the values that uh, he was fighting for are, are the values that they shared and are worth fighting for. And I think that's important. I, I think you, you need to do that. I think, uh, um, so I, I, thought, I thought it was impressive and I, and I think whether it translates or not, I don't think anybody knows right now. But we should welcome that. That's the renewal process you, you, that I think is important. You know, one of the things that happened in this last midterm is that uh, among those new members of Congress, there are 20 veterans, yeah. uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And, um, you know, it was always my thought that uh, one of the r things that worked in the Congress was all these World War II veterans who had fought side by side, even if they had different views. And I'm sure you fought side by side with people who had different backgrounds, different views, but they had this regard for each other as people who had served and served each other as well as the country. 
do you think the influx of this new generation of veterans is going to has the potential to change the tenor of things in Congress? For certain. No question in my mind. I mean, I think that uh, one of the reasons I urge people to perhaps serve in the military is that I think it is incredibly uh, educational and broadening in terms of leadership, leadership skills, uh, decision-making, hierarchy, uh, how you uh, lead people other people in tough situations. And so I think... And exposure there, to a diverse group of people. And exposure to diversity and all of that. I think that there are real virtues to that. And I think that when people bring it to public life, I do believe they bring an additional, uh, additional set of uh, assets or qualities. I also believe that it is important for people to understand the consequences of decisions you are called to make in Congress. And if you have no sense what it's like to serve, to uproot from family, to be in harm's way, uh, you can approach those things very differently. Um, so I personally think it, 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 it is a very valuable thing, and I think we're going to be better off for it. So you're back here now at Yale uh, all these years later. Um, and well, I know you have a lot to. Tiny few years. Uh, uh, you uh, you have a lot to impart, uh, you know, from a long career in public service. But I guess I'm interested in what these young people are imparting to you. A lot. This is such a great two-way street. I can't tell you. I mean, I have uh, the, the, the class. I have 20, 20 students in a seminar on power in the 21st century and American diplomacy and so forth. And they're just, they're so smart. They're wonderfully engaging. They are already engaged in the world around them. And, and they come with uh, their questions. And the questions often are provocative and make you stop and you gotta think through some of your own judgments. And, and so it's a learning process. I love it. It's great. I, r I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and I tell well, people I, I go home optimistic every day having spent time with these young people because they're skeptical, but they're not cynical. Correct. And no, no. they understand they have, I mean, this is a generation that came through uh, wars, a financial crisis. I don't think they take for granted the things we took for granted or that the institutions and answers we have are necessarily the right ones and that perhaps there are better answers that we could pursue. One of the things that I really like about them writ large so far as uh, that they don't put up with the nonsense. I get a sense that they just are incredulous at the idiocy of what is happening in Washington today and in the world. They feel challenged by it. They want to respond to climate change. They want to deal with cyber. They want to do things. And I think they're more willing than some people to look for the common ground and not to be become pawns in this crazy They are. I think they also are demanding uh, larger answers. I think well, they, that they want... They should. They're tired of incrementalism, yeah. and they want big answers on, on an issue like climate. That is uh, You know really what, important. David, climate... I've spent 30 years working on the climate issue, and I had the privilege of negotiating the Paris uh, agreement uh, on behalf of the administration with a lot of good people. And I'll just tell you that uh, by pulling out of that agreement, the president has 
people are going to die who wouldn't have. We are going to have billions of dollars of damage to property uh, that would not have, uh, didn't have to occur. Because if we don't respond, we're, we're going to miss the biggest economic opportunity the country's ever had, which is the energy market. Energy policy is the solution to climate change. And we need to be moving forward on creating the new grids, the new energy sources, uh, uh, electrifying our, our transportation sector, our power sector, so that we're, not, we're decarbonizing. And we have to do this at a fast rate. It takes a president of the United States bringing together and, and literally uh, you know, uh, motivating, providing incentive, urging through leadership all of the sectors of our economy to come together and make the decisions we need to. I, I, I'm taking you forward. Now I want to take you back one more time. February 28th uh, of uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of what I think is a major event in your life in, 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 in your service in Vietnam. Was that not the date uh, of the... Uh, of the ambush. Of the ambush in which, that for which you got the Silver many. Star? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Does, does it seem like conceivable? Like it could possibly be 50 years? Yes. I mean, I, I, can, I can remember once going to the beaches of Normandy. I write about it in the book. And my first visit to the beaches of Normandy was at, you know, about 1947 or something. I mean, they were still detrous from the war on the beach. And, and then I reached a point ultimately when I came back from Vietnam where I was getting further and further away from my memories of Vietnam than I was to my memory of that beach and of, 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 of the proximity of memories to World War II. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're in a very different world today, obviously. But I learned, uh, I mean, that was a day of, of uh, luck, luck. And that's what I write in the book. Uh, you know, those of us lucky enough to come back, I think, bear the responsibility to lead a life of purpose. And it's what I wrote in my foreword that you referred to, that, that, that we survived when a lot of people didn't. And in the end, the difference between that is one of just grace of God slash luck. And uh, if you're lucky enough to, to, to get there, uh, you owe something back. And, and I think that's the way I've tried to, tried to live. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 